0: We are continuing on in a series called The Questions Jesus Asked, and it's a a great series we've been in. I've received a lot of feedback from you guys, and uh, it's been a fun look. We're just taking a look at eight or nine different questions that Jesus asked when He was on this earth. He asked dozens of them, almost a hundred, and we're just taking a look at eight or nine. We might do this again in the future, but we're just asking the questions Jesus asked and then looking at His answers, and today we get to a really tough one. So why don't we bow and let's pray. Father, thanks for your grace. Thanks for that time of worship that hopefully have focused our minds and softened our hearts to the things that you are about, your truth. I pray as we wrestle with it now, this idea of peace, that, uh, God, you would speak to our hearts and our minds. Help us to all get on the same page as to what you say and certainly have the courage and the fortitude in our lives to live it out. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, as I mentioned, we're looking at the questions of Jesus in this series. And and we've taken a look at some really, really fun, if not very direct, questions that Jesus asked. Look up here on the screen. We looked at questions like, to what shall I compare this generation? When he he talked about what we are like as people. Uh, We looked at, why do you notice the speck in your brother's eye but do not see the log in your own eye? A question about judging others. We looked at the question, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? A question about materialism. And then last week we looked at that question, why are you so afraid? Have you still so little faith? The whole whole idea of fear. Very relevant questions that we've been looking at. Things that you and I deal with day in and day out in our everyday worlds, but questions that draw us to a right understanding of God and His economy and how we can trust Him in all these things. And yet what you need to know is that not all of Jesus' questions were direct or rhetorical. Were definitely fairly easy to answer, not at all. In fact, some of them were downright biting and baiting and even controversial in their original setting. So for instance, when he asked the disciples, are you still so dull, when they didn't get one of his parables, or when he asked the Pharisees, who warned you to flee the wrath to come when they came to his baptism, Those questions weren't received very well in their original setting. I mean, those are the kind of questions that that, that were shock value kind of questions. It really caused people to sort of reel at when he asked them. Some of Jesus' questions were the kind that struck a negative chord when they originally asked. And even now, some 2,000 years later, they still create debate and Controversy. And so that's the setup for the question that we're going to look at this morning. It's a tough question Jesus is going to ask. It's the kind of question that seems to go against the grain of much of what he has already taught. But as we're going to see, it's the kind of question that carries with it a lot of life if we'll let it into our hearts and minds and wrestle authentically with its answer. And so let's read the original historical account in which Jesus asks and answers this question. It's found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, beginning at verse 49. So if you brought a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 12 right now. If not, as always, we'll put the scripture up here on the screen. And just so you know, the the setting here is that ever since verse 1, Jesus has been teaching some things about the kingdom of God. He's more down the road in his public ministry, probably one to two years into it than he was last week when we were talking about fear. And he's been talking to them about the kingdom of God. And now it all comes to a head here in verse 49. Look at what he says. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And then here's our question. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And then he stops talking about this, And he moves on to the next topic. Now, um, at first glance, this question seems to go against so much of what most people think Jesus was about. It even seems to go against much of what he has seemingly been teaching in the Gospel of Luke. I mean, when the angel announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, it's that famous verse, all of you know, in which the shepherds say, or the angels say, peace on earth, goodwill toward men right? I mean, Jesus came to bring peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Even earlier than that in the Gospel of Luke, when Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, gave his famous prophecy about Jesus's coming in Luke 179, he clearly said it was to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus himself twice told people that he healed to go in peace, once in Luke 7 and then in Luke 8. And then Peter, the great disciple and apostle of Jesus, would go on to say in the book of Acts that he was all about preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. And so with all of this, we've got to ask ourselves, how could Jesus now insinuate that he didn't come to bring peace on earth? And Matthew even tell in his version of this account that he came to bring a sword. I mean, how do we make sense of this question of Jesus's and all the implications that go with it, especially when there are other passages that seem to suggest the opposite, that he did come to bring peace on earth? That's the issue before us as we look at this question that Jesus asked here. And I want, i trying to answer, I want to share with you three things. Three things that come directly out of the words of Jesus here. Three things that are all a part of his answer to his own question that I believe will help us get a handle on this peace on earth thing that he's talking about here. And here's the first thing Jesus makes clear. And that is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's number one priority in a fallen world. This is where it all begins, folks. This is the first thing that we need to notch away in our spiritual truth belt, and that is that God's number one priority in this fallen world is the gospel of Christ. And so look again at verses 49 and 50 of Luke chapter 12. Using two powerful biblical images, Jesus says this. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Focus on three words and you'll understand what Jesus is saying here. Those are the words fire, baptism, and accomplished. Fire, baptism, and accomplished. Add those up, you understand what he's saying here. First, that word fire. He says he came to cast fire on earth and that at this point in his ministry, because he's only about one or two years into three years of ministry, he wishes that it were already kindled and flaming. Fire. It's a twofold symbol in Luke of the Holy Spirit and of judgment. Look up here on the screen, Luke chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. We find John the Baptist in talking about Jesus saying this. It says, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now get this. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And though this sounds so very ominous, and I guess in many ways it is, what you need to know is that this is a simple, repeated New Testament theme, that humankind has fallen into all kinds of sin, sin that separates you and me from God, sin that any thinking person would admit deserves to be judged and dealt with, and that's precisely what Jesus is saying he came to do. And he uses the image of fire here, fire that will deal effectively with sin and judgment, fire that will burn away the impurities of sin and bring people to God. And once you get this this word picture of fire here is related to sin and dealing with sin and judgment the only question becomes well how are you going to do that jesus how are you actually going to deal with sin in such a way that we burn away the impurities and this brings us to the second and third key words we need to focus on in this passage and those are the words baptism and accomplished baptism and accomplished jesus says that he has a baptism to be baptized with and that it's a rough road until it's accomplished. It's interesting, that word baptism here simply means something that comes over you or upon you in order to initiate you into something. And that's what that that word baptism is. When you strip it away of all of its New Testament context and just take the word as it is, it means that something comes over or upon you in order to initiate you into something. So when used in context of water baptism, it simply refers to water coming over you, like we do in church here, water baptism, to initiate you into the kingdom of God. Not that baptism does that, your faith does that, but it's a symbol of initiating you into the kingdom of God. In the book of Acts, you'll find the phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That was simply when the Holy Spirit came upon those initial disciples, those initial apostles, in order to give them power to carry out the ministry of establishing the church. You get the idea. And so here, simply see that Jesus uses this word to likewise refer to something that's going to come over and upon him in order to initiate him and us into something. And that is simply his road to the cross where he's going to suffer and die for the sins of humankind in order to bring them into a right relationship with God the Father. Don't miss this, folks. He is telling us that based on the fire that he is casting to deal a judging blow to sin, the process is his baptism his road leading all the way to the cross where he would finally deal with sin in a judicious manner and would satisfy God the Father, though it would be painful for Jesus. And just so that we can be sure that this is what he's talking about here, he uses that third word accomplished. It's eerily reminiscent of a word that Jesus will use, or a phrase that Jesus is going to use on the cross, his very last three words recorded in John 19, verse 30, when he says, It is finished. It's finished. What's finished? The redemption of humankind, the dying on a cross for sins so that we all have a chance at an eternal relationship with God for those who believe and follow Jesus. Jesus. The fire and the baptism are finished, accomplished on the cross of Jesus as he secured our eternal salvation, the forgiveness of sins, so that we might be right with God. Folks, don't miss. This is why Jesus came, to deal with sin and to bring us to God. It's the heart and soul of the gospel, and I'm telling you, it's God's number one priority in a fallen world. And though there are lots of things that flow clearly and cleanly from this gospel, things like our personal sanctification, our growth in Christ, the establishment and ministry of the church, the healing of our marriages, the correction of a runaway culture, what we call the redemption of culture, all these things do flow from the gospel, but don't ever be misled. The core and heart of it all the guts of the gospel, if you will, is the fact that Jesus came to deliver a death blow to sin, the same sin that keeps you and I from God, but now has been dealt with adequately through his atoning death on the cross. It's his number one priority in this world, the forgiveness of our sins so that we might come to God. And if you don't understand this, then you're not going to understand the division thing that he moves on to next. About five or six years ago, I was living in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, as many of you know, and pastoring a church there. And at one point, a guy asked me in my church if I would meet with a, uh, another church leader from another church, a more liberal mainline church. And this guy had a deep concern about um, the environment. And because this man was very respected in our community, and I respected him too, um, this guy from the church, I, I agreed to see him. And so we had a a nice lunch there in Chagrin Falls, Ohio, where I was living, and and he was talking to me about the environment. And, And at one point, this elderly guy got all hot about the issue, and he leaned forward in the table, and he said, Jamie, he said, can you think of anything more important than saving this earth of gods? And folks, I didn't even blink. I didn't mean to be rude, but I looked at him, and I said, well, yeah, saving an eternal soul from hell. I said, that's a lot more important And he sat back and he smiled and he said, okay, you got me on that one. And then (laughs) then we went on to talk still about the environment. But I thought to myself, you know, I'm all for saving the environment. I really am. And I I think there's some merit in that. And, And you read most reasonable Christian authors will say that the earth is a gift from God and that we need to take care of it. That all is very true. But folks, please see, pale in comparison, that does to the saving of an eternal soul separated from God through what Jesus did on the cross. It's a priority issue for God. It's what he's most concerned about. It's why Jesus came. That's the first thing that he makes clear to us here. It's what the famous C.S. Lewis was getting at when he says first things first. Life is filled with lots of wonderful second place things. Your marriage, your job, your vocation, your dreams, your aspirations, all good things there's only one first place thing. And that's your relationship with Almighty God. And that takes priority. And before I move on, because we're going to move on in about 30 seconds, what you don't want to miss here as well, is that it's this gospel that brings peace. It's this gospel that brings peace. Peace with God and peace with others, at least those who believe and embrace the salvation that you've embraced in Christ. So once we get this, the question becomes, well, how does this understanding then relate to the division and lack of peace that Jesus is going to go on to address now? In other words, how does this gospel, which is God's primary agenda on planet earth, ever get caught up with something that can divide and even divide such wonderful institutions like the family? And this leads us to the second key thing Jesus shares with us here, and it's this, and that is that if and when push comes to shove for the follower of Jesus, it's Jesus and his kingdom. You don't want to miss this. If and when, and as we're going to see in a second here, there are times that push comes to shove between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, it's Jesus and his kingdom for the follower of Christ. And so look at how Jesus goes on to say this in verses 51 to 53 of this passage before us. He says, do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided. And then he goes on to list all the possible divisions or at least some representative samples of the possible divisions here. Please don't miss the flow here, folks. The priority of the kingdom and then there are times when that priority of the kingdom are going to create division. These are tough words of Jesus. They have even tougher implications, but we need to wrestle with this. So let's wrestle with this. Now, once again, to very clearly get what Jesus is saying here, I need you only to focus on two key words, and those are the words peace, and then that thrice repeated word division or divided. First, that word peace. And as we've already hinted to, what you need to know about peace is that recognizing that Jesus came to bring peace on earth is not as simple as simply assuming that everyone is going to live in perfect harmony and never have conflict, even conflict over Jesus. I mean, that is such a Pollyanna way to view the world if you think that peace on earth simply means that everybody's going to get along with everybody and never have any conflict. That can't be what Jesus meant or even the shepherds understood when the angels said peace on earth. That, that can't be what they meant back then. In fact, right after the shepherds gave their wonderful prophecy, or just before, I'm sorry, the shepherds gave their wonderful prophecy of peace on earth, look at what Simeon, a prophet in the temple, said to Mary, Jesus' mother. Look at Luke 2 verses 34 and 35. He says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. (laughs) I don't know about you folks, but it doesn't sound like a prophecy of peace to me. And that's the point. Listen, for those who admit their sin, who embrace Christ and become followers of Him, the Bible clearly says that peace can and will be theirs. They're now right with God. They've come home to Him in faith and trust, and they literally, as Billy Graham once said, have peace with God through what Christ has done for them. And yet, think about it very logically. For those who choose not to embrace Christ, however for those who choose to remain in a state of separation in and through their sin, then certainly their tune is not going to be peace, either with God or even at times with now with those who follow him and represent what he is about. It just makes sense. It's sad, but it makes sense. I mean, even that phrase of the angels at Jesus' birth, in which they say, peace on earth and goodwill to men, what most people tend to miss is the rest of the sentence. Did you know that that's not the end of the sentence? It goes on to say, with whom he is pleased. Those are the people that have peace. I would submit to you that's a pretty big caveat, don't you think? I mean, that's not put on the Christmas card that we usually get with whom he is pleased. Those are the people that tend to get peace. And once you get that, this brings us to the division part. Simply put, that when a person becomes a follower of Christ, something happens inside him or her, that though they are awesome things that happen, they have the capacity to be at odds living in and against a fallen world. I want you to latch onto this. Look up on the screen. Four things I would submit to you happen to a person who becomes a follower of Jesus. Four things the Bible makes really clear happens to you and me when we choose to follow Christ. First, you adopt a whole new set of values. You got a whole new set of values. You now value what God values. You value His righteousness, His goodness, His morals, His way of life. Second, you got a whole new set of priorities. In other words, you're now prioritizing what God is about. Faith, love, righteousness, wisdom, maturity, selflessness, prayer, the Word, fellowship with other believers, and on and on. Your priorities are completely different. Third, you now have a whole new set of affections. This is the tender part of it all. In other words, your heart is more attuned to God. You're now in love with Him. And the things that you desire, your affections, are now the things that He desires, even Him Himself. And then as if all of this were not enough, as a follower of Christ, you now have a whole new direction to your life. You now want to please Him, and so you set your course on making Him first and foremost in all of your decisions and actions. And so please see, folks, the point that Jesus is making is that at times, this divergent set of values, priorities, affections, and direction can create conflict and even division with both the culture around you and even those you love and care for who haven't yet bend the knee to Christ. As Jesus says, father and mother and daughter and mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, which are simply representative of all the various complex family relationships that occurred back then and occur today. And please know, it's very important, it's not the gospel or Jesus that is to blame here. You know, there are some books written by leading atheists today in which they suggest that religion itself divides, therefore, religion is not very good. Jesus would not agree with that. No, what Jesus is saying here is that it's a fallen world and the tenacity of those who refuse to live life on God's terms that is the ultimate culprit here. One has turned to righteousness, one has turned to life, one has turned to eternity, the other is still mired in death and in going their own way. And so as Chuck Colson says, these are kingdoms in conflict, and there are times will be conflict, but don't blame the ones who have turned to live life God's way. That's not the problem. The problem is our fallen world. I love how J.C. Ryle, a great commentator back in the 1800s from the famous Church of England once put it in his commentary. Look up here on the screen. He says, but wherever there are hearers of the gospel who are hardened, and determined to have their sins, the very message of peace becomes the cause of division. It is not the gospel which is to blame, but the corrupt heart of men. And so when you think about it, folks, here's what's happening. What happens here is that a not-yet-convinced world, or maybe even a not-yet-convinced family member, sees something new and strange in the life of a Christ follower. A new value, a new priority, a new affection or a new direction, and though there are times that this not-yet-convinced world or family member will rise up and say, that's awesome, I love what I see in you. There's other times, however, that they won't understand what they see in you, and at the very least, it's awkward, or at the very most, it can create conflict because they're threatened by what they see, because it makes them feel guilty about their own life. You ever had that happen to you? And all of a sudden, now there's some lashing out and even division that can be caused there. That's what Jesus is suggesting what is happening here. Division, not peace, at times, will be the name of the game. And again, you can hardly blame this on Jesus, the one who saves us and makes us more like himself. It's simply the tension between what the Bible calls the flesh and the spirit, the old man and the new man, those who have come to God and those who haven't quite found him yet in their lives. And though it's sad, it's a reality of life. As I share with many of you, I was not raised in a, a, a very church-going home, an evangelical church home at all. In fact, we were what we would call C&E Christians, Christmas and Easter only type of Christians, and we were not a very religious family at all. In fact, we, we didn't talk much about God. We certainly didn't talk about Jesus. We hardly did any spiritual disciplines. Uh, in fact, the only time we ever prayed was before a meal, and that was very quick, and, uh, and then maybe we'd pray privately, each of us individually at night, but that was about it. And then, as many of you know, in about 1981, I was introduced to a personal relationship with Christ. And my spiritual life went from black and white to technicolor. I mean, it just took off at that point. When I was in college, I was really starting to grow in my faith and uh, come alive in my faith. And I'll never forget one summer, I was back home in my hometown of Chagrin Falls, Ohio, um, spending the summer with my parents. And we lived in one of those old Midwest farm-like homes. You guys remember those? Where they're, you know, built about 50, 80 years ago and they had those old skeleton keys on the doors. You guys remember those? And the, the glass-handled doorknobs. Some of younger people don't remember that. You can Google it. You can see pictures of it later, but they, they existed. And the reason I tell you that is because none of our doors locked. Like my kids today will lock their doors, you know, and I'm like beating on their doors. We didn't lock our doors back then. We couldn't because we'd lost those skeleton keys years ago. And so that summer I was home, and I'll never forget one night, I was in my bedroom, and I was praying. It wasn't something that we did very often in my home, but I was absolutely fired up about my new faith in Christ. And one of the things that people who follow God do is they pray. They just don't pray little sentence prayers, you know. They pray a lot. And does anybody know what the most humble position is when you pray? What is it? On your knees. And so I was in my bedroom, and I was on my knees. And and I was praying before God, not for like three minutes. We're talking for 30, 40, 50 minutes. And I'll never forget about 10 or 15 minutes into my time of prayer, as I was crying out to the Lord, my dad opened up the door and he said, Jay! And he stopped right in the middle of my name. And he looked down at me and, and, and he looked at me with this quizzical look and he said, What are you doing? And I said something like, I'm praying. Do you mind? You know, and, and he said, hey, didn't mean to bother you, and he kind of shut the door. About 30 minutes later or so, I got done praying, and I came downstairs, and let me just simply ask you, do you think that was an awkward moment between me and my dad? Yeah, it was. He didn't even want to talk about it. I, I mean, it was like I spoke a foreign language by doing something like that. That just didn't happen in my family of origin. It was an awkward moment to say the least. It was a different value, a different priority, a different focus than anything we had ever done. And folks, over the years, I could tell you story after story with my family, some of them fairly benign like that one, but some of them a lot more tension-filled, where the values of the kingdom collided head-on with the Norman Rockwell values of 20th century American family life. And what Jesus was warning us about here is that when push comes to shove, even with lost family members, it's got to be Jesus and his kingdom. That's our only choice. And at times this is going to create unwanted and not very fun division and discord. Now, Now thankfully, as I've shared with you guys too, since those early days of my salvation, most of my immediate family members have come to faith now in Christ. And as many of you know, this changes everything. So as my brother and my sister and my mom have all embraced Christ, we now have mutual understanding and shared experiences and similar worldviews. There's even renewed intimacy as we now share joy together and peace and purpose in Christ. And yet think about it, even within those families in which we all share individual and eternal salvation, I believe that Jesus' words here still bear on those situations. What am I talking about, you ask? Well, I believe Jesus here is not simply talking about initial salvation, but he's talking about all the values of the kingdom. And so even within a family structure in which everybody might be saved, there is still the risk of division. Especially when a saved kid or spouse or brother or sister decides to make choices or to live a life not commensurate with the new values, priorities, affections, and direction that Christ offers. And many of us have experienced this in our own families. Many of us have experienced family disunity, the tension and distance that comes from a disparity of kingdom values, even among those who have come to faith and trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. And the question that I want us to end with this morning is what do you do with that? I mean, outside of simply telling somebody to get with the program, get right with God, repent and turn to Him, which tends to work about one out of a hundred times, what do you do to attempt to bridge the gap in the meantime? When there's a disparity of kingdom values, when Luke chapter 12, verses 49 to 53 is happening for you within your family, even of those who claim to follow and trust Christ. And this leads us to the third and final thing we learn right from Jesus. And I love this one, and it's simply this. And that is that you can still love and respect others, even in the midst of spiritual disunity. This is the one thing that some of you simply need to hear today, that you can still love and respect others amidst spiritual disunity. What do I mean by that? I want to show you something from the life of Jesus that is fascinating when it comes to how he responded to his own family disunity. As many of you know, there was a point in Jesus' public ministry that he had some disunity with his family. Because even though Mary had been clearly told by God who Jesus was and what his mission was, they still weren't fully on board, especially in the earlier years. They still struggled with understanding, seeing, and believing what God was up to in the incarnate Jesus. And so in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, and then verses 31 to 35, it says this. This is fascinating. Look up here on the screen. It says, Then he, Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Pause right there. His family. His family. Almost surely, Mary, Mary and his brothers, Joseph has kind of fallen off the face of the earth at this point. We don't know if he died or whatever. He's just out of the picture after Luke chapter 2. But his family there, certainly his mother and his brothers, thought he was mad. They were saying, you've got to come home, you've got to get out of this, you've got to be institutionalized because you don't have any idea what you're talking about. Then look at verse thirty-one. And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, "Your mother and your brother are outside seeking you." And we know from the earlier verses why they're seeking him. Verse thirty-three. And he answered them, "Who are my brother? Who are my mother and my brothers?" And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, "Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my br- brother, my sister." and my mother. Two things you don't want to miss that's going on here with Jesus. First is that he's having disunity with his family over kingdom values. So if you ever think you're weird because you have disunity within your your family of origin or in your immediate family over kingdom values, take heart. The incarnate perfect son of God had the same disunity. It can be very common within families to have disunity, even within believing families, even within families in which you all were initially on the same page, there can become confusion, misunderstanding, difficulties that can create disunity. Jesus was experiencing that. But the second thing you want to notice here is that he is applying his own ethic of prioritizing God and his kingdom above all else, right? That's what he means when he says These are my mothers and brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, and my mother. He's saying God's kingdom is number one. That's the priority. That's my main focus. As we're going to see in a second, it doesn't mean that I don't love my family. It's just first things first. He's applying his own ethic. And what you need to know is that we have no indication, save for Mary's presence at the cross and Jesus' brothers who eventually follow him after his death, that this changed anytime soon. I mean it did eventually change but not necessarily soon. In other words we have evidence that, evidence that this spiritual disunity with his family was a continuing source of frustration for Jesus just like it is for some of us. And yet a fascinating and revealing thing happens when Jesus is on the cross and breathing his last breaths. Look at how John records this in his gospel. This is life-changing. Look at John 19 verses 25 to 27. It says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, pause right there, that's John. John always refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved, so it's John. He, Jesus, said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. I would encourage you to be touched by that. I would encourage you to see what is happening here. One of Jesus' very last acts before his death was to make sure that his mother was cared for, looked after, and became part of both a healthy nuclear family as well as a healthy spiritual family. Jesus handed his mom off to John who would become one of the pillars of the New Testament believing community. And by so doing, I would submit to you that he showed love and respect to her even though they had times of spiritual disunity in their relationship. And all I can say to you is what a model and challenge this is for you and I. A model and challenge of love and respect even amidst disunity. And it causes me to wonder what our witness would be like, what our sometimes strained and awkward family relationships would be like if we showed the same love and respect Jesus did. Maybe to a non-believing spouse or a rebellious teen or a rude uncle or a sour grandmother (laughs) or a distant brother or sister. I wonder how our relationship with them, and even more importantly, their relationship with God, would be if love and respect were leading the way. And please understand, folks, I'm not suggesting that you roll over. I'm not suggesting that you don't set boundaries. I'm not suggesting that you don't set spiritual priorities. We've already established all of that. No one's asking you to cave in on anything. But how you hold your ground, how you maintain your values, how you maintain your priorities in a relational way with those around you makes all the difference. I've been a Christian now almost 30 years, and I've made colossal mistakes with my families. I've also made colossal good rec- reconciliation. And one of the greatest lessons I've learned is that I don't need to change my tune. I don't need to change my theology. I don't need to change my relationship with God and Iota. I do need to change, however, the way that I approach people in my life. And love and respect is always the name of the game. Peter was one of the most brash apostles out of the 12. And yet he wrote in one of his letters, he said, always be prepared to give a defense for the faith that you have in Christ, but do so with gentleness and respect. So even the brash apostle Peter learned that gentleness and respect, as the proverb says, a a, a gentle answer turning away wrath is always the way that we are to go. And so I wonder what your life would be like, what your family member's life would be like, if that was the way that you functioned with them, the Jesus way. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that the questions of Jesus always leave us wondering what our lives can be about when we follow him and answer them in the way that he wants us to. And so, Father, I pray that as we um, chew on this today, and I got to believe that some of us here, this really hits a chord in us because we have strained family relations, believers and unbelievers alike. God, I pray that, Lord, you would deeply speak to our hearts and our minds. And though, Lord, we didn't flesh it out today for time's sake, um, one of the things we need to pause and consider is, what does love and respect look like in our situation? And so, God, I pray that as we think about those things and as we ask you what that looks like, God, that you would clearly guide each of us individually in the way that you would have us go. God, I'm grateful this morning for the questions Jesus asked, even the tough ones. I'm grateful that they cause us to think deeper about our lives, the kingdom of God, And what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so we do thank you. And we do this in Christ's name. Amen.